there is always some sort of easiness when a woman is dealing with certain types of work. Heidi was casting certain spaces in latex and then creating a negative of that space and producing installations where those latex building skins were kind of floating in the space. And then people get focus on the question of the skin because she was a woman and this reinforces the binary of male uh, sensing the world through the brain and woman sensing the world through the skin. But imagine Heidi Bücher working now with 4D programmers and doing some sort of a metaverse of those skins. It sends the force of her exercise in a complete different direction, which has an enormous potential uh, to think about technology, art, sensitivity, gender, and fantasy. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here focus on slow approaches to creative practice that we believe can awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. This new season of the podcast is made possible by a grant from the Resonance Foundation, a philanthropic organization in Southern California that seeks to advance, communicate, and encourage new perspectives through the creative process. Learn more at theresonancefoundation.org. I'm really pleased to be speaking with Chus Martinez, an art historian and curator, a prolific and visionary thinker and writer, and a mentor to many, not least the students she guides as head of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature at the Academy of Art and Design in Basel, Switzerland. Chus, welcome. Um, and, you know, I want to say upfront what a real pleasure it is to follow your work and ideas to be like many on the receiving end of all of your scholarly rigor, you know, with which you interpret and you help us to understand the work of an array of artists. And also, you know, there's a real curiosity and a generosity of spirit as you transmit those ideas and imaginings. And I just want to thank you for that because it's very meaningful um, for me yes. and I'm sure for many. Thanks to you for these very, you know, honoring words. It's very, <laughs> very generous. I already want to recommend to listeners here to follow Chus Martinez's short form thoughts and musings on Instagram, as well as longer form writings um, in for art publications and museum catalogs and so much more. Chus, if there's anything in particular you want to add about your background or about where you are sharing your ideas, I'd love to hear that. Mm, well, I think I'm, I'm very soon going to have a website, which is very new to me. I never thought I would have one, but I'm going to collect all my writings and list uh, them and make them open to people to read. Oh, that's amazing. That's going to be a real treasure trove of information. 
You know, I, I was thinking maybe for the listeners to get acclimated to your way of thinking and engaging, maybe you can just explain the name of the institute that you lead, the Institute Art, Gender, Nature in Basel. Well, it's an art school and it's, it was called the Institute of Art, so um, Kunz Institute, when I arrived eight to almost nine years ago. And it existed as um, in a free form at the beginning. And then um, at a certain point, it was transformed into a more, let's say, applied um, university of the arts. Mm. So the curricula was formalized. When I arrived, it was my task to do so. And then I kind of proposed to all the teachers that it would be really great if we think about the substance of nature and the substance of gender as equivalent substances, if not the same. And the real environment in which the art praxis is happening, even if you are conscious of it or not, and then give it a try to a curricula that would really cheer that and try to enhance that uh, nearness in between nature, gender and art. Mm. A couple of years, I think almost in the middle of the pandemic, it was um, uh, an idea of the rector of the university came to me and said, well, why don't we put those notions right at the top? And wow. then at the beginning, I was even uh, skeptical because huh. I know my teachers. <laughs> and um, of course, there's always these moments of fear where people think, oh, perhaps we are turning into agenda cultural studies or agenda uh, institute or a nature expertise. But we are an art school. So this um, is important to know that everything is under the point of view of a practice and not under mm. the theoretical analysis of notions and uh, historical situation of them. But, um, but I think it's going well, and I'm very proud that we did that. Yeah. You just mentioned that you were a bit worried about what the teachers might think, but your presence and probably also this name has attracted in some really amazing uh, women in particular, but just amazing teachers. I think that anyhow, the conversations around these subjects are so uh, fertile, so good, mm. that it has been worth to make that exercise. I only told everyone that those names and those titles and so on are great only if we are ready to, you know, to accept the fact that one day perhaps we just done with the conversation, the practice yeah, is in place, sure. we don't need it, we change. Sure. And then it would be really great, which would be a very happy day. I yeah. hope it comes soon. <laughs> yeah. Also on the website of the Institute, you couch it in the language of love, which yeah. feels exactly right to me. But here in the Netherlands, that's a word that a lot of people would be, as they say, allergic to. So you have to usually hide it behind other terms. Uh, but it's nice that you say it up front. I like it very much. I think that we are very determined by what we think it's our perception in the collective and the public sphere. I don't know. I've been a foreigner all my life. I'm a woman, which I'm one meter fifty. I have a very strong accent when I speak in English. So to be a little bit ridicula or to be a little bit kitsch is definitely something that I embrace as a tool <laughs> to produce possibilities uh, for feelings to really take the ground and actually activate all positive energies I can. So what is better um, to restrain for certain, uh, let's say, more kitsch naming or behaviors of mm -hmm. embracing and loving people yeah. and taking yeah. care, taking real care? 
Yeah. Or we are just going to be conceptually naming those yeah. practices eternally without ab applying them to our yeah. everyday life. Well, I, I don't find it a catch at all. And I also think that it's a language that young people feel completely comfortable with. Um, and that's who the program is for. Yeah, but I think that the young generations are really ahead and they are much more sensitive and and taking care of uh, those notions much better than our generation. So I'm really thankful that uh, students of ours and, and the younger people speak it aloud and give it a form mm -hmm. that then um, has a meaning in the, in the collective mind. Mm -hmm. And that, that's primordial. I think as much as I respect certain cultures, it's also true that some of them, like the Anglo-American culture, sometimes stresses too much the question of self-love and all that. I would only accept those notions if it means that self-love is a pool of incredible generosity towards others. I think yeah. generosity is the only guarantee of freedom mm -hmm. and democracy. Um, yeah. and, that, and that's uh, really my opinion. And this is something that we need to really encourage people to, to be bold enough to be generous on the risk of being vulnerable, on the risk of being yes. perceived wrongly, and even on yes. the risk of being misused a little bit. But what you gain is much more than what you lose. What you set in motion, it's mm. uh, super important. Yeah. Speaking love aloud and being generous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Beautiful. Thank you. So with this podcast, I've been exploring the work of artists and thinkers whose ideas and practices I feel can activate new potentials in the discourse around artificial intelligences, um, and of course the workings of those emerging technologies. And I'm not a specialist in artificial intelligence, but I have been for about 30 years interrogating those structures and looking especially at what voices are included or excluded. Mm -hmm not only you know gendered perspectives but also cultural perspectives cosmologies even are included or not um which is something that's beginning to hopefully gain some ground right now but as far as artists activating new potentials for artificial intelligences it's very clearly the case with the artists that we're going to focus on today Heidi Bucher she was a Swiss artist who was producing a substantial body of work starting in the 1950s, but we're going to discuss mostly today work that she developed in the 1970s and 1980s. And for me, the work's relevance to today's emerging technologies, like, but not limited to AI, is not only in terms of themes of emancipation from patriarchy or from the, any kind of oppressive structures in society. I'm also interested in what some have termed the kind of unruliness in her art practice, which I think AIs could learn a lot from. But I also have a really strong sense that while she was breaking up and kind of dismantling and maybe reassembling certain codes of the time that she was living in, she was also writing new code for the future. And through her artistic works and research, 
Heidi Booker, I feel, was like a cryptographer in a way. She was leaving us keys to some encrypted reality that she knew was out there that maybe wasn't available during the time she was alive, but that maybe today is available to us. And maybe that's why her work is suddenly gaining such a prominence again. Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, you put it very well. There is always some sort of easiness when a woman is dealing with certain types of work. Heidi was casting certain spaces in latex and then creating a negative of that space and producing installations where those latex buildings, skins were kind of floating mm -hmm. in the space. And then people get focus on the question of the skin because she was a woman and this reinforces the binary of male uh, sensing the world through the brain and woman sensing the world through the skin and then she doing the skins and all that, so which is always very funny. But another part of it is super interesting. I was writing about it three weeks ago because it's going to be another exhibition of Heidi this time in uh, Art Sonia in Seoul at the end of March in Korea. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden I thought, wow, this is amazing because I never thought of those images that we inherit from the romantic period where we see the body of a woman and the soul leaving the body. And, you know, you have seen it in Tom and Jerry too. Yeah. Like you see it in yeah. cartoons where the, the cartoon has an accident and then yeah. the soul is leaving the body and then a hand of a friend yeah. takes the soul <laughs> and puts it back into the body. So then I thought, okay, this is also a potential image to understand the doppelun the doubling of the spaces that she was creating. It is a critique on a way, of course, because uh, she's kind of exposing those um, lifeless uh, spaces uh, twice. But on the other hand, it's giving those spaces an opportunity to have a soul that is different from the body, which is the actual building, the actual space, the actual room, the actual patriarchate. So she produced that doubling. And then on top of it, you can see that in producing that fantasy of it, um, she produces uh, another fantasy on top, which is the possibility that the soul is as organic as the body. Yeah. So the soul of the space is actually a, a new skin, you know, like in a snake, that mm -hmm. one skin is left and the new snake is born. So there is a metamorphic uh, transfer that, of course, she couldn't activate. But imagine Heidi Bücher working now with uh, 4D programmers and doing some sort of a metaverse of those skins. Absolutely. Actually yeah. Building a complete different type, you know, space. So um, it's uh, really uh, a yeah. fascinating thinking. Because yeah. it, it kind of sends the force of her exercise in a complete different direction, which has an, an, an enormous potential mm -hmm. uh, to think about how technology, art, sensitivity, gender, and fantasy um, mm -hmm. united, and how fantasy may help actually to produce the possibility of life after life, um, that is able then to do a complete newness that is born of an exercise of just copying what's there, but then the copy gets an identity so different yeah. from the original one that uh, produces hope 
and probably uh, you know some sort of joy. So it's of course like it's ahead of her time, mm. but it's not unthinkable. A person that was also doing some choreographies, dancing with shells and the creaturesque. So already her mind is a mind of fantasy, techno fantasy. So a yes. fantasy that is oriented towards uh, the production of a space that we know it from video games. We know it from fantasy movies. You know, the first gate towards transformation is the production of a space that you move and then instead of encountering the past, you encounter a future that is completely different from that past and frees you. So there is an enormous techno code in that simple exercise. Beautiful, not simple yeah. in the uncomplex, yeah. but simple in the way that it's just the, the space again. But I love that. Wow. Wow. So much. Um, actually, the last interview I did on the podcast was with the Brazilian artist Camila Sposacci. Oh. We talked about her work, the Earth Anatomical Theater, that was made for the fourth Bahia Biennial, and about how it was inspired by the anatomical theaters of the 16th century, which were, of course, cutting open the skin to discover the unknown. And I have been thinking, of course, about Camila's work and her action in that project of digging in the earth, Terra, Gaia, this vibrant crust of our planet and all of the information that gets kind of released and revealed when you listen in a different way, when you allow the earth to speak. And I think that that relates also to these skins that Heidi Booker was making. She was as you said, using lake gauze and layers of gauze and glue and latex to, to strip away the surfaces of architectural structures, mostly interiors, mostly spaces that had some kind of patriarchal encoding or were subjugating women, women's bodies, women's identities. One of the first spaces she skinned was this called Hayden Zimmer, the gentleman's uh, study in her family home where she grew up in Winterthur, Switzerland. And the sanatorium where Dr. Binswager, also with Sigmund Freud, were conducting experiments on women relating to so-called hysteria, as well as a famous building, uh, an old hotel that was that the Nazis turned into an internment camp for Jewish women and children. So she was definitely activating and bringing to consciousness the way that the social structures were embedded in these spaces. But until relatively recently, Heidi Booker had not been widely well known. Why do you think that is? I suppose that the German reunification and the historical periods that uh, that occur in Europe at the end of the 80s um, kind of had an incredible impact in a new interest to understand the relationship in between physical space, ideological mm. space, political space. Mm. So everything that was kind of relating to space reading, space interpretation, architecture, and the reorganization of those spaces symbolically, but also mm. socioeconomically speaking, um, was super well perceived. But then when a, a work like Heidi, which was not unknown, people knew, um, it has been exhibited a little bit, but also yeah. um, curators and critics uh, knew about it a little bit. But the fact that her idea of a space was completely 
um, submerged in what they thought it was emotion and yeah. perhaps resentment and intimacy um, canceled the possibility of her being political because she was then not referring to a political public space but to an intimate personal space as mm -hmm. if this is in any contradiction and that's uh, I think one of the potential explanations of the why they were not including or not researching her work, which is a um, very interesting thing. Also because, as you were saying before, with Camila Sposati, to cut the skin to know what's under mm -hmm. uh, is what she was doing. She was mm -hmm. giving a skin to cut it, and then instead of going outside the uh, men's room or outside that building or structure, you don't know where you are going. She just was exploring the possibility of moving yeah. and moving uh, in between realms that um, at that time were very difficult to move. So she just created a slight movement in between the wall and her work. And then these millimeters would be quantic. And then she was probably in another cosmos. It's not that she wanted exactly. to be in Germany or in Paris or in New York. She wanted to be just out, 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 as in very big out. Exactly. And that's what, you know, technology, as you were referring from the beginning, is allowing that you could create an out that is yeah. now eloquent enough for many people to understand what she meant. Yeah, she even, there was this interview that her son Indigo made of her back in the late 70s, I think, where she was talking about one of these structures from her ancestral home in Winterthur that she wanted to fly up in the sky and actually had a crane and a crane operator and lifted it into the sky. And he said, well, why? Why do you have to do it? And she said, I have to get it as far away from here as possible, which was <laughs> really interesting. And then one of her very last works, one of the later works was uh, an actual like a photo collage she made of the same structure fl flying above the Alps. So she was definitely... Uh, a cosmonaut. Yeah, yes, exactly. She was perceived as a resented woman and she just was a cosmonaut. I was really inspired to talk to you about her work because of the discussion that you led with curator Jenny Schlenska and, uh, and Quinn Latimer, writer, poet, who also works with you at the Academy during the symposium that the Haus der Kunst organized last year, where you three embarked on this kind of speculative journey mm -hmm. into and through her work, looking at it not from a standard art historical perspective, but really through a speculative lens and really opening up hinting at kind of cyber worlds or even new you know kind of cosmos that Heidi Booker was inhabiting or at least was helping to build for the rest of us ahead of her time and there was something you you had said in that conversation with Jenny and Quinn about this space this gap that she was always leaving um and I had interviewed an architect who did her PhD about the Japanese concept of ma which is this energized gap, which is the activated emptiness. And, and I feel like 
you don't hear about people talking about Heidi Bucher's work as much in terms of energy, but there certainly is something that's energized or the idea of wearing the skin of the building, putting on a body shell, and it's like putting on a superhero suit and you actually mm -hmm. suddenly have these powers. It's a suit that's going to transport you somewhere. But the question I wanted to ask you had to do with what is that space in between the wall and the skin? Like, what is being opened up there? And is it a kind of uh, a membrane stretching or opening a kind of uh, a portal? Yeah, I think it's a very important question. When the doctors and the anatomists open, of course, they know that at the beginning there is blood and then there is organs under the skin. But then one day when the microscopes and the technology allows, you then mm -hmm. discover many other things that you never thought that you would have an entity and an agency like stem cells. And then you discover processes of activating life that are not actually um, based on being something from the beginning, but the decision-making of the body to make mm. them something, like a stem cell kind of a response to the call of the body to become an ear or the perhaps being part of a... Um, optic nerve of an eye or it could be part of your stomach depending on what it is that the body needs when the body is forming mm. so when she just goes into that new skin let's call it um you know in the shamanic would be that skin of the animal not yes, like being right. uh, for example being in the skin of uh, of a goat and mm. so on is the shaman reclaiming the goat space i doubt it um, it's not about that. So by being wrapped into that skin, there is some sort of a magical transfer that happened that sends you somewhere. So she's yes. kind of, it's much more of a petrol station, you know, it's like some sort of a power plant uh, situation where the skin brings you somewhere, but it's not that you want to go to the, to the Herrenzima. My God, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I think not because it's not thinkable. But because that ambition is just too small, why would you, you know, why would you like to go to the patriarchal space if you already are thinking that that space is a very small, narrow, kind mm -hmm. of restrictive space? So why mm -hmm. would you dream backwards? Yes. I think it's nonsensical. I would not dream with something that I myself think is completely insufficient. It's not even including me. So I would not reinscribe me in that space. I would just try to dream of something completely different. Right. That's why I then wrap myself into that skin to try to be like Pokemon, Pikachu, flying. Yeah, yeah. Like right. Going, right. right. Becoming, becoming a cloud. Uh, becoming something different of course departing from the tools i had from the beginning and the mm -hmm. tools i had is the positive space of privilege of the patriarchy the negative space of being a woman negating my privileges and in between those two as you were saying is the possibility of flying and becoming first a cloud perhaps for, let's say, yeah. 200 years, 300 years, then I become rain, then I become crops, then I become something else. And then I magically reactivated something that is absolutely the potential of a space that is then uh, good for everyone and not just good for a sector or mm -hmm. good for a community and so on and so forth. So I, I think that we should much more think about 
that transfer, which we totally understand when we see a shaman um, in the skin mm -hmm. of an animal, yeah. uh, and, and not thinking that she really wanted to become a rabbit or a goat, or um, meaning, yes, of course, but a magic rabbit or a magic yeah. goat. Yeah. I was looking back at some archival footage of from this show that she and her husband, Carl Booker, did in New York called X, which was at the Museum of uh, Contemporary Craft. They created these body apparel sculptures, and they interview people who are wearing the sculptures, who are trying them on inside the exhibition space, who are talking about losing a sense of equilibrium, not having a sense of the body anymore, kind of entering this in-between space by being within that sculpture, which obviously evolved to become the body shells, which was without her husband's mm -hmm. involvement. And, you know, I was thinking just in terms of what you're saying about wearing the skins, um, about the fact that she had spent this period of time in the United States and Canada and came back to Switzerland and set up her studio in Zurich in a, in a former butcher shop, right? A space mm -hmm. where bodies are... <laughs> mutilated, cut up. <laughs> but it was like the carapace of a shell that's left, you know, of a body that's long gone, and then a hermit crab or another invertebrate comes and takes up refuge in it and uses it as a disguise, uses it also as a place of refuge and subterfuge. So um, I'm curious about it also in that way. I don't know why she returned and, and make those decisions meaning I am just fantasizing, but it's super interesting that many times, because we are living in a society that all the time uh, addresses other forms of organization and the fact that we need to understand power mm -hmm. um, in different in different forms and, and um, offer more metamorphic, more organic, more um, distributive forms of power. And yet, still, we are only... Um, reinforcing all the time um, questions of representation. So probably for her, it was very important to find out what is the relationship in between relevance and retrieve. So do I need to mm -hmm. get exposed to be relevant or can I be relevant in ways that are only um, relevant for me at the beginning and find their own ways, like some sort of uh, underground rivers? that they are water and they are rivers, but they are not seen and recognized as such, and they form a different geography. And I suppose that probably the American experience was quite a brutal one that uh, that just pushed all the time towards uh, being in the forefront. And it's very difficult for certain identities to occupy that imagination of what the forefront is and means and how it acts and what's mm -hmm. the role and how it also has an effect on others. As much as people love to use the word empowerment, empowerment means that it's only power that we recognize and the powerless we don't. But I, mm. I don't think that power is the most important trait. Therefore, yeah. to be empowered is for me something negative because I want to be wise and I want to have relevance, but I don't know if all the time the trait that defines my impact needs to be power. 
So mm -hmm. if you say that I'm empowered as a woman, you imply that I did not have that power before. I may have it now. Right. And also you imply that there is some sort of an equalizing interpretation of power that sees that somebody has less power than me. Then this power has been transferred to me. Then now mm -hmm. I have more. Yeah. And then it, it, it kind of has only for me a flow of negative power connotations right. of uh, and also resentment because it seems that in that flow of energy that gives power to some like as if power, power is a limit resource that can only be given to me after a certain reclaiming mm -hmm. of it and was somewhere before that was not in me yeah i think that way of thinking that metaphorical flow is so influential in women that probably to go aside and to do something just in an invisible, magical way, yeah. hoping and hoping and hoping that it would be um, visible to some, those that mm. are actually more attentive and focused on mm. traits that are not those, mm. um, may at the end of the road, a road that you may not be able to witness yourself during your lifetime, that's the risk, but still, um, she gave it a try, and and it's happening. But I I do think that in that sense she m must have been an incredibly intelligent, uh, speculative mind that totally understood what you win and what you lose if you enter into certain mental structures. I suppose that Heidi was kind of fed up with being exposed to mo to those revelations that actually did not allow her to. To, to to develop a thinking and a practice that goes beyond them. Well, and I think that just to go back to thinking about the butcher shop uh, where she set up her studio, the time that she spent with her family in California obviously was formative in, in some way. There was a, a sense of liberation. She also was exposed, of course, to California West Coast feminists um, just prior to her arrival. Judy Chicago and others had set up the... Um, the feminist art program at Fresno State College, which eventually became CalArts. And even that art program was set outside of the university because they knew they had to create a space that was not on the campus, that was away from the possible, you know, kind of judgment or intrusion of, of men in that case. And so that may have somehow been a model of returning to Switzerland, which is, of course is, you know, you know better than I, would have been a much more restrictive situation from her. And then to think, ah, I'll just take over this butcher shop. Why should I aspire to have a studio like every male artist or recognized artist has this kind of studio? This is my studio. But, but not only, I, I suppose that she's like much more like a genetic engineer. Hmm. She was kind of, um, in conversation and let's say her frustration was in relationship to a certain system and being very intelligent, I suppose she thought that the American system and the feminism that they created was to challenge their system, but not necessarily hers. So she kind of came back mm. to kind of uh, create a lab to understand her system mm. from uh, inside. Her system is a system that um, absolutely opposes to outspoken um, ways of trying to transform fast. There is a logic to that. But in Switzerland, if you want to speed it up, um, you would have a problem because the balance of mm. 
the representation of the diverse voices is based on exactly not giving priority to the progressive mind, to the progressive voices, mm -hmm. but to allow those that are not progressive and they are actually quite conservative to be in conversation all the time. Mm -hmm. That makes the system for more progressive, modern machine-based uh, societies a little bit um, less adapted to fast transformation. But this mm -hmm. is not what is wanted here. So probably by coming back, she was she set up a lab and gave yeah. the lab time yeah. and yeah. went back to understand it, that the transformation would be eventually come, but it's never produced by an individual. And that the myth or the American myth, or the, the, the heroic myth of a, a extreme gifted uh, personality that may create a difference that then gets immediately transferred into the collective mm -hmm. is definitely not uh, a myth that has any validity in the Swiss society where she come from. Mm -hmm. And therefore, she needed to actually um, go away from any prestigious studio space, not only as a woman, but just as a social historic minds, let's say as a social scholar, as a quantic scholar, as a microbiologist that yeah. knows that it's going to yeah. take some bacterial transformation that takes some time yeah. till actually the balance of virus and bacteria would allow life to, to be born again. So I think yeah. that there is a, let's say there is a, a very brutal honesty that Swiss are really able to of going back to the system that is actually your problem and facing mm. it. I think I cannot imagine something more painful than doing it because me being from Spain, the most beautiful exercise ever is escape. <laughs> so not to escape is such an act of responsibility and such an act of artistic political practice. And this for me is to have political, deeply political mm. commitment was. Not because she went outside in the streets and said, please give me the space that you are negating to me, but she decided to do it from the inside. And yeah. the legacy of her is, uh, if, if I would be a Swiss artist, I would be really in my knee and I would actually exactly honor that political gesture. Yeah. I stay here for all of you that come after me mm. uh, for generations and generations. She was not into the belief that a person can force it, but a person can invocate it. Mm -hmm. And definitely a person can study and do very mm -hmm. deep research into, into forming um, experiences and giving it um, like a body that yeah. you would recognize. And everyone is doing that. Everyone is recognizing. You see those installations and you totally know what she's talking about. It's clear like water. So it needed to be structural. Yeah. And and yeah. I think that she was aiming for a structural change. And uh, and here we are. It's happening. I was revisiting some of my old books from the late 80s, early 90s. Feminist critiques of science and technology. And thinking about the fear of a machine that's idle, you know, the stress that that creates for a system that is constantly producing and reproducing, and these ideas of productivity. If artificial intelligence would be really intelligent, would not work, no? I think 
um, that's the idea of singularity. Okay, yeah. the intelligence um, which is encoded into a certain system and machine would surpass our intelligence. Then why do we think that it's going to be used to serve us? If the singularity point is reached, then the machine would be dreaming the same as myself, being lazy and reading poetry, no? I wouldn't call you lazy, but yeah. <laughs> but it's my dream, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the, the dream is becoming a lazy dog in the summer of Spain. I think you, you don't dream with um, um, having, I don't know what, a position that would allow you to work at midnight and be under yeah. stress and yeah. wake again at six in the morning and answer 300,000 of emails a day, I think. I doubt that the machine, yeah, artificial intelligence, dreams with that mierda. It cannot be so. Yeah, <laughs> it needs to be something different. So, the artificial intelligence can fly like an eagle, and uh, you know, yeah. Too often we are forgetting that these artificial intelligence programs are actually determined by the goals of the industry. So they are kind of enslaving uh, the future development of their goals because these people want it as a cutlery. So they want artificial mm. intelligence to help them to cut their, let's say, economic entrecourt. Right, yes. But it's absolutely thinkable to imagine it otherwise. And the question is, is there a research that would like to finance uh, a complete different way of imagining this, which mm. is not necessarily a tool it's an entity. Mm. Every time that you read these articles about artificial intelligence, it's just that people are imagining tools yes. that, that are a little bit smart or smarter than us. This is always yeah. our vanity. They are smarter than us. So this kind of this, but but I think we are really, you know, it's always this vanity thing and yeah. and the relationships that we are building with metaphors, yes. with language, yeah. with them, yeah. for doing a tool that would know what's my favorite uh, dinner. And then also do my text and then, uh, you know, have no artists because artists are going to be irrelevant because yeah, artificial yeah, intelligence yeah, is going to yeah, do the art. It's yeah. like, yeah, fine, relax. Obviously, in machine learning, there's this flow of information from humans to machines. That's the way it it's works great. right now anyway. Yeah. And that directly reflects what humans want the future to look like. And so because there's been a kind of a relatively small subset of humans deciding what they want the future to look at, or even non-humans like corporations that are controlling but humans more, you know. Machines like humans and any other living um, <clears throat> being, is that a mind what you are feeding them to learn? So mm -hmm. depending on what exactly. you want them to learn. So now they're exactly. learning from, from what we are giving them. And we are actually aiming to destroy certain things that are probably relevant, like thousands of uh, texts that now can be produced by uh, machines and da da da. For example, those press releases of museums now get produced by artificial intelligence. How much uh, the marketing departments of those museums have been operating as if they are machines already? So it doesn't yes, matter exactly. if a machine does it. So exactly. the, the question is, what are the differences that we can introduce in the systems that we want it to be in coexistence with machines? Mm. That's the yeah, important thing. Exactly. Yeah, right. If we need to coexist. Of course, we need to coexist. And I have absolutely no problem. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's never about substitution. And people are all the time kind of um, blackmailing uh, the working 
class humans with the machine that is actually taking away uh, your possibilities of making a living without defining learning programs also for the humans where this coexistence is still meaningful in the future. Right. Yeah. Well, for me, and I think it sounds like you would agree that many, if not all of the things that Heidi Booker was doing are what I would hope the future can look like. Ways of peeling back layers, making the invisible visible, enacting transformations of the body, defying gravity, you know, bridging different layers of reality. Um, Jana Bauman, the, the curator of the, the exhibition at Haus der Kunst, said she was um, preparing the ground for, for genderless utopias. And what you said earlier about her being a metaverse designer. That's why, in for me, it's important to sort of somehow in some little way with this podcast, try to bring some awareness to artists that were already pushing boundaries. The other no longer living artist that I've had a conversation about is Isama Noguchi, who absolutely was working also in the quantum realm. And artists like Camila Sposacci and, and others that I've spoken with. And there are so many more I would like to speak with, but to try to touch, you know, to come closer to touching another version of reality that maybe is possible when the flow of information to these machines also has that kind of richness of perspective, which is again, why that speculative exercise you did with Quinn and Jenny as part of the Heidi Booker symposium in Munich was so great because it was an opening to such possibilities for how our technologies might be enriched um, through the work of someone like Heidi Booker. And, um, and importantly to note, perhaps, is that because none of you are specialists or scholars of her work, that's partly what gave you the freedom to speculate as you did. It's interesting how if the work would not be as it is, we would not be fantasizing as we are. So it's not only us. And that's something that, of course, our history as a discipline would never give us right. But it's not about right or wrong. It's about how certain practices are mm -hmm. really helping us to understand ways of coexistence and, and mm -hmm. understanding uh, possible futures in a, in a really fertile and interesting way for, for many. So yeah. that, that's what, at the end of the day, is really fantastic, I think. Yeah, yeah, great. I would like to talk about the possibility that Heidi Booker was a cyborg. Oh, I think that she would completely sign to it. Imagine yeah. how that's a super um, escapist slash more uh, yeah, incredible fantasy of not being, the possibility of not being yourself by being yourself differently is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. it, it means that you are actually yourself in anotherness that would allow you to understand many other otherness mm. and differences that you mm. are limited by culture, by gender, by historical situation to understand. So I think that a person and a personality like hers would totally engage into into being a cyborg. Also yeah. because who who really even if I think you know even if you would not like the patriarchy and the system imposed by your own parents at the end of the day. Um, you would not want it to be perceived as a daughter that hates the father, 
But mm. if you are a cyborg, uh, then you are free from that uh, lineage. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's not you. So depersonalizing the role that you are playing in your family definitely allows you for a position of uh, otherness that that does not make the father a bastard, the daughter a resentful bitch, and so on and so forth. So, you yeah. know, it definitely yeah. there yeah. because I'm sure that this is not what what she wanted. That is nothing at the end. It's nothing personal. That's the funny thing. And also, we need to think that if you are a cyborg or if you are, if you morph. You don't stay. I think we always think that we, you are one thing and stay there. So, no, probably you can mm -hmm. be a cyborg, let's say, Monday. But then on Tuesday, you are a good daughter again. Yeah. On Wednesday, a fantastic mother. And then on Thursday afternoon, you are a cyborg. But it's not even the same as a cyborg from Monday. And that applies to everything because we want some dynamics. And those dynamics are not embedded into the into the permanent traits that stay and, and make of you a cyborg monument. So she did not yeah. want it to become a cyber monument, just a cyborg. Exactly. And this is, you know, it's it's interesting because of course Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto was written in 1985. So it's almost 40 years ago. But there is a lot really that she was talking about then, which I think continues to be relevant. This idea of the cyborg is very much connected to unruliness that that people, this term people use to describe Heidi Booker's work. And the definitions that Donna Haraway gave, hybrid creatures that carry incompatible truths, they are shape-shifting and interfering, transgressing boundaries and forming unlikely alliances. Um, they call for the revision of the concept of gender and many, many more things, of course, and a lot of also humor, irony, blasphemy, you know, like you were you were just alluding to with the, the father. And uh, so I think she was a cyborg uh, in all of those ways, even if the technology wasn't there yet. I think that I think it's interesting. She was in the early 70s in California and 1976, the first Apple computer came out and you could almost see that the body shells being a model for this white cube thing that Apple ended up uh, working with. I subscribe. I subscribe to the idea. Also, I, I need uh, to say mm -hmm. that to people that probably identify Switzerland with uh, chocolate and mountains, but they are top number one in innovation. So yeah. I'm sure that the Swiss were the first to see Heidi as the first Swiss fantastic cyborg. Great. So you would use the word cyborg, but you in the past already have used the word monster to describe mm -hmm. not her, but the works that she was making, the skins, not as these inanimate mm -hmm. shells, but actually um, having some kind of sentience or intelligence that she knew was there, but that we cannot detect yet. And so I would love to talk more about that topic, but in the interest of time, I wanted to ask you, what kind of monsters are being nurtured at the Institute Art Gender nature mm, the monster of love monster is not negative for me it's something that no, forms absolutely not yeah it's it, it forms spontaneously uh because there is a need and something in the system is not working uh some forces need to be contested uh human agency is not enough and then you need the monster and the monster is just uh something super simple that um kind of emanates a force that is not 
popular at the time. That's the monsterish. So, you mm -hmm. know, the monster force. So, um, love and, and time and generosity is a little bit of a monster inside mm -hmm. these, uh, controlling capitalist systems that on the one hand are trying to, uh, invocate experimentalism but at the end of the day they want mm. everything being strategized and they think that they can plan it from step one to every step and that this is absolutely possible and uh, and then the monster appears and it appears just by producing some sort of a, a small disruption into the into the feeling system yeah. and uh, for me more and more is like a, a quest and a crusade against toxicity so mm -hmm. i think that toxicity is both and equally uh, the same in the environment and mm -hmm. as a substance and in the feelings so it needs to be eradicated so mm -hmm. i have a, a complete um, quest against it and i think monsters do have to do so are there particular references or particular artists that you point your students to today i know you point to lots of artists and you really celebrate different yeah too many. I think, of course, one of my yeah. mega heroes is John Jonas, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, many other women her generation. Mm -hmm. They are absolute pioneers. It's people that they did suffer uh, toxicity and negativity their own life, and have been just, you know, becoming monsters to reverse, 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 reverse. Yeah. And I think this is such a difficult, beautiful exercise, and and uh, they are there for us. So yeah, I think uh, art in general, artists are for me an organ. They, I yeah. think the bomb of the monster is that organ, that bomb that protects us from that planning, strategizing, uh, controlling capitalistic uh, forces that are sending messages that actually do pollute the mind of uh, younger yeah. people in so yeah. many ways, uh, collapsing their opportunities and dreams and fantasies, mm -hmm. and they really need it. I think we are so uh, disrespectful um, versus young people, mm -hmm. and we don't really care enough. So, and Absolutely. this yeah, need, I agree. needs to end. So. Yes, I agree. I agree. And I think that these artists, in spite of their struggles or toxicity, they also teach us and they model empathy. Totally. You mentioned generosity as being a key ingredient in the world that uh, we want to create and need to inhabit. And I think that, you know, empathy and in all kind of scales and, and ways is equally part of that love that your institute, your art school stands for, and that really emanates so wonderfully and beautifully from you, Chus. You have oh, a... Thank you. Yeah, it's really, it's so... <laughs> It's so present in all of your writings, in all of the talks you give, and uh, I'm grateful to have had the time to speak with you. It has been an incredible honor. Yeah. Yeah. I learned so much. Don't repeat it anytime. Have a wonderful rest of the day. My really, my great big thanks to you, Juice Martinez, for your time today. Yeah, you too. Lots of kisses. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Besito. Ciao. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. 
To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank our founding partners at the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute at the University of Adelaide, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, and of course, the Resonance Foundation for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>